Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posting March 18, 2016, we talk about trade, governance, and growth in Latin America with Angel Guria, a former Minister of Finance and Foreign Affairs in Mexico, now Secretary General of the Paris-based Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, OECD. We'll also point out top features in the WPJ winter issue, Latin America on Life Support. But first, some timely insights from Washington with Paul Brandis, who runs the West Wing Reports news service. Well, since Syria's ceasefire agreement does not include two terror groups, the Islamic State or Nusra Front, critics have asked just how effective it will be. But so far, there's a general view that it's working as planned. Violence has receded, and reports say that it is now easier to deliver badly needed humanitarian aid. But what about Russia's military pullout? The U.S. long believed Moscow moved in to prop up Syrian dictator Bashar al-Assad, and his position does indeed appear to have been bolstered, much to the displeasure of the White House. But some analysts here say now that the Russians are pulling their warplanes at least partially out, the burden shifts back to Assad, who continues to be under tremendous pressure from rebel groups. Syria's civil war is now in its sixth long year. The U.S. is condemning the sentencing by North Korea of a 21-year-old student from the University of Virginia to 15 years of hard labor. His alleged crime, trying to steal a propaganda poster from his hotel in Pyongyang. The sentencing of Otto Warmbier, he's originally from Ohio, comes as the U.S. rolled out tough new sanctions against North Korea for its recent nuclear and missile tests. The White House says Warmbier is being used as a pawn. And with Donald Trump continuing to lead in the race for the Republican nomination for president, world leaders are expressing growing concern at the prospect of Trump in the Oval Office. One State Department source says U.S. allies in Europe, Asia, Latin America, and the Middle East have voiced worries about Trump. Meantime, who does Trump consult on foreign policy? He tells NBC he consults his own brain because he says it's a big one. The Trump campaign has promised to release a list of actual foreign policy advisors soon. For World Policy On Air, I'm Paul Brandis at the White House. You're listening to World Policy On Air. Now this. Again, it's part of the alignment. You don't align or realign the Chinese economy over 12 months. Um, it does have consequences, however. Massive, massive drop in commodity prices and massive drop in oil prices. The, the question is that we cannot put on the shoulders of China only the, the, the fate of the world economy. Angel Guria, for the past nine years, Secretary General of the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, OECD, on a principal threat concerning this year's World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. He knows the territory. Early in his career, economist Guria served as the principal architect of Mexican economic stabilization, 
cutting the nation's bloated government spending six times when he served as Minister of Finance and Public Credit. There followed a term as Minister of Foreign Affairs when he restructured his nation's foreign debt and helped negotiate the North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA. Comfortable in six languages, Guria has been a vocal global advocate for sustainable development and employment, rising living standards, financial transparency, and fighting corruption, all critical to improving governance and growth around the world, but especially in Latin America, where he himself retains close ties. For the World Policy Journal Winter 2016 issue, Latin America on Life Support, he spoke about that in a conversation headlined, Free Trade, Ticket to a Bigger Party, and we updated the discussion recently for this podcast. Mr. Secretary General, welcome to World Policy on Air. Thank you very much. Let's start with the International Monetary Fund and several other financial institutions whose recent reports indicated disappointment in the pace of development and growth in several emerging and developing economies in Latin America and Mexico specifically. Do you share their concern? Well, uh, absolutely. The OECD itself just put out a projection, and that's uh, uh, only a few days ago, about the world's uh, projected growth, uh, which is even lower than the one of the IMF. Uh, We're saying the world will grow in 2016 at 3%, and that it will only recover, uh, uh, you know, even in in 2017, it'll be about maybe 3.3. We had originally forecast that by... 2017, 2018, it would be very close to the, uh, what we call the cruising speed uh, before the crisis, which is around the 4%. Now, that's not going to happen in the next two to three years. And uh, so there's been a weakening of the prospects worldwide. Now, it happens to affect Latin America in particular because Latin America is a big exporter of the things that have fallen most in price, which are commodities uh, and, of course, uh, also oil in some countries, uh, including Mexico, Venezuela, uh, Ecuador, and, uh, and some others, Colombia, etc. But, uh, and also because they depend so critically on the growth of the other countries, i.e., in many cases, China, because uh, they are the big buyers of um, uh, commodities and uh, oil and uh, iron ore and uh, copper and you know everything uh, uh, that that uh, these uh, countries in Latin America export, and also the ones that are more industrialized, i.e., Mexico. Well, they're very uh, connected to the U.S. Uh, economy. The U.S. economy now, you know quote-unquote, the bright spot of the world, but meaning growing at 2 to 2.5%, which is, again, nothing to write home about. <laughs> and therefore, this slowing of the world economy has very specific, concrete, very targeted impacts in the countries in Latin America uh, that are producing these uh, uh, relatively uh, mediocre or sometimes outright bad outcomes And last but not least, you have the lack of reforms, which in the end, and that may exclude the case of Mexico because they did go through with their reforms actually in a big way. There are other countries like Chile, etc. But mostly what 
the countries in the region did was to ride the bonanza and uh, be happily celebrating the fact that uh, the prices of commodities and raw materials and the oil and everything were so high and uh, did not take the hard decisions uh, for structural change that they should have. And now when the proverbial tide leaves the bay, a bunch of people are there without swimming trunks. Let's continue the focus internally. What about the lack of diversity in many of these economies? That is a very serious curse. Uh, it's part of what we would call the Dutch disease. I don't know why they always, well, they, they, I suppose it's because of the tulip story and all that stuff. But uh, the, 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 that is, when you have a very, you, want to, you, have a, you have the cow, the proverbial cow, you're milking the cow. The cow is generous, giving a lot of milk out. You never feel the need to do anything else. Uh, and, and because you're so comfortable, the oil is giving you so much, the copper is giving you so much, the iron ore is giving you so much. Even the food, if you're in the big exporter of food, you know, Brazil is all of the above in a way. Um, uh, you, are, you are very happy because all this is providing you a lot of foreign exchange because you're exporting. Number two, it's providing you uh, investment because a lot of companies and coming to your own country to see if they can partake in the bonanza. Uh, but also, number three, you have a very strong fiscal position if you played your cards right in terms of uh, uh, sharing the bonanza with the tax authority. Uh, uh, and therefore, you, 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 you're looking good, and then you don't feel the need to change because uh, proposing, promoting, and legislating, uh, and negotiating uh, structural change is painful and politically sometimes costly. So why do it if you're doing so well? Again, the moment things turn around, then you realize how much you need this uh, structural change, including, as you have suggested very appropriately, the critical issue of saying, let's move up the global value chain Let's move up the value-added chain. Let's move up in terms of sophistication, more knowledge injection into, uh, you know, not just maquiladoras and, you know, the, just uh, for, the, for the sake of using cheap labor, but increasingly uh, better skilled labor. And the game is all about skills, skills, skills because it has to do with productivity. It does not mean, you know, if, if, if all the investments would go to the cheapest labor places, then everything would be in Vietnam or in Haiti, or, and it's not, because it's about productivity. It's a combination of how much one worker produces in one hour, in one day, or in one week, and what they make. And the combination of that is what drives the investment decisions. And this is why, uh, you know, if we had better skilled workforce, if we had a more sophisticated workforce, we could attract even more investment, but also why we're falling behind in terms of competitiveness, because we did not take advantage of the, uh, of the good times, quote unquote, in order to make these changes. 
It seems to many that there are basically two tiers developing within Latin America. Those like Mexico that are doing pretty well through all of this, managing to find the way through, and others that are not. Let's turn for a moment to the Trans-Pacific Partnership, TPP, trade agreement, because it seems to exclude a number of Latin American countries that could use some help. Indeed, only Chile, Mexico, and Peru were originally included. What might be the impact on those countries that are excluded from this pact, and are you concerned about it? Well, it's no coincidence you left out Colombia, Chile, Mexico, Colombia, and Peru. No coincidence they are some of the countries that are doing better in Latin America. In fact, the countries that are doing best in Latin America, when you talk about Peru, which had a, just a, a, a very, you know, an awesome record of growth until maybe three or four years ago, they had that reached even eight, nine percent, and then they, they had an average of about six percent for the last decade, six or seven percent. Now they slow down again for the same reasons, but, but doing quite well. Chile always, you know, that's the reason why they were accepted to the OECD because of their best practices. Mexico with this massive, just impressive collection of uh, structural changes, some of which took constitutional changes, uh, even in the government, even without a simple majority in the parliament, but they managed to negotiate uh, the necessary votes in order to, to uh, be able to push these, uh, these changes. And of course, Colombia now, no coincidence again, uh, accessing the OECD, moving towards membership, full membership of the OECD like Mexico and Chile, um, and uh, adopting best practices, changing their legislation. So it's not that they are excluding anybody, it's just that they are literally uh, uh, a, 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 a group, a coalition uh, of, of countries that are uh, all trying to go towards the best practices. They are together because they understand, they share the same values, but they also share the same principles, they share the same best practices. They all want to be more modern, they all want to move towards uh, uh, excellence in terms of uh, you know, their investment, their trade, their, uh, their R&D, whatever. They have a lot of way to go, but they're moving in that direction. And they have made more progress in their respective integration in the last few years, you know, five, four or five years, than the rest of Latin America did in the last 50 years. What about concerns by some critics of TPP that it still has a lot of failings, especially for the disadvantage in those countries it does cover, uh, doing little to protect workers and union rights, instead favoring big pharmaceuticals and other multinational companies? Are you concerned this will widen the gulf between haves and have-nots in those countries? No, I think like uh, any free trade agreement and uh, more and more, it's not about trade because it's not about tariffs. It's more about precisely about, you know, investments, investment protection. It's about giving assurances that your investments will be well taken care of and protected. And that if for whatever reason, you know, there is a, an act of expropriation of, or arbitrariness on behalf of any, any of the host countries, or even a public need by expressed or interpreted by that host country that will be a proper compensation for the investor. This gives confidence. This creates more opportunities for jobs. And let me tell you also that 
we now have gone uh, for, well, what, more than 20 years of NAFTA. The best remunerated jobs uh, in the Mexican labor force are those connected to exports and therefore those connected to uh, our free trade agreements, in particular to NAFTA. I think this is an opportunity. Uh, I think this is going to allow many people who uh, may not be picked up in the workforce today, I, would, I think they're going to be able to be uh, incorporated. But it's about basically giving assurances to investors that when you are a member of one of these agreements, you are safe, and that makes you go to uh, those places where there's productivity is higher uh, without any consideration about safety in terms of the political risk. Well, of course, productivity is a two-edged sword. You get more work out of uh, employees in less time, and the question is whether the benefits are being shared in a healthy way. You did a study on the relationship of inequality and economic growth and argued that inequality is a real hindrance to economic growth. Not only are you absolutely right, but we are going the extra mile there to prove you right. <laughs> uh, what do I mean? Uh, the theme of our ministerial council meeting of the next uh, first and second of June is uh, it's called uh, enhancing productivity for inclusive growth. Originally, I had proposed the name inclusive productivity. I thought it was a fascinating, very challenging concept. Like when I launched green growth for the first time. Everybody told me I was crazy because green and growth did not go well together. Now, I would challenge you to find anybody who does not think green growth go well together. It's the only way they go, actually. By green, you mean sust environmentally sustainable and economically sustainable. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, you know, but, uh, but now, green has become a generic, and it means it's sustainable. It means you have respect for the environment. That's the only growth you could consider today. Well... All I'm saying is the kind of productivity we should be considering is inclusive, which means that it should take care of incorporating, getting on the bandwagon, those that are less, uh, you know, uh, less uh, privileged today, uh, upskill, reskill, just skill the workforce uh, so that they will be less vulnerable to the uh, advantages of technology, we should use technology as a big advantage, a big leverage for growth and development, not as a threat to up to 40% of the workforce who, because they're not skilled, could be substituted by robots. Well, we have to make sure that doesn't happen, but you're not going to uh, protect these workers by simply legislating anything that goes against the logic of progress. You are going to do that by actually making sure that they have better skills, more portable skills, uh, uh, more sophisticated skills. The OECD has developed in the last years the Better Life Index that doesn't measure economic success based on GDP. What are the key findings in the Better Life Index in relation to Latin America? Specifically, what were the kinds of core values there that determined happiness? Well, you do get some rather uh, important uh, Conclusions and the question here is not just to do an interesting poll uh, that gives you certain results. The question is what are the policy implications after you have the information? Uh, you you fundamentally uh, um, have family values, 
very important in Latin America. Uh, you have uh, ambitions which are pretty fundamental, like jobs. You know, the more, the more, let's say, the more vulnerable, the more socioeconomically vulnerable is a society, regardless of whether it's in Latin America or in Asia or in Africa, vis-a-vis -vis OECD economies in, in, in uh, Europe or other parts in the world, um, the more the, uh, the, the, the more they will be inclined towards material uh, priorities, meaning jobs, remuneration, and things like education and health facilities, uh, transportation facilities, etc. And the more developed is a country, uh, they will be more like in um, uh, the uh, participation in uh, civic, civic participation, being part of the society, uh, the quality of life, uh, balance between work and, uh, you know, your, your leisure. I was fascinated by the importance placed on some non-material things uh, in this survey, the importance of uh, a feeling of transparency, uh, integrity in government, uh, better governance and, and justice. These are, uh, these are less material you wouldn't think people uh, uh, yes, who are more more concerned about their well-being would be as concerned about these conceptions, but that is important, and it suggests that there's a real connection between real democracy and development. And I wonder if this then has become uh, is going to be a, a big part of your priority. I think it has become uh, joined by the hip because you can no longer see a feasible modern economy uh, functioning in a society that is not respecting the rule of law uh, because first of all uh, with the information that people have at their disposal today with all the technology that is available well if, if it produced the Arab Spring five years ago in a context of much much more restrained and constrained use of information and data etc imagine in countries which have total freedom, uh, like is the case today in most of the countries in Latin America. Uh, so what you have is a society that is much more aware of the rights and also much more aware of what is happening uh, with the rest of the world. And it has to do very importantly with the question of trust. Here you have the legacy of the crisis, low growth, high unemployment, growing inequality, but also a very serious destruction of trust and trust in all the institutions we built over the last hundred years, you know, in presidents and prime ministers and in, in ministers, in political parties, in parliaments, but also in banking systems, also in multinationals, in multilateral organizations, etc. We have at the OECD what we call a trust agenda. And that includes, very importantly, the fight against corruption, the improvement in the justice systems and the judici judiciary systems, etc., the exp expediency in the justice systems, but also, for example, all our work on taxes, all our work on taxes and on, on, on having nowhere to hide, you know, for taxes, uh, doing away with the tax havens, doing away with, uh, you know, uh, places where uh, people, country will use, uh, you know, the deposits of the citizens in the country next door to avoid 
to, to avoid the, the, the tax man. Uh, all this trust agenda and also the, the, the BEPs, the base erosion and profit shifting, to make sure that the multinationals also pay the, their fair share. All this is part of the trust agenda. The man on the street today, perhaps unemployed or perhaps with somebody in his, in his family unemployed, is no longer willing to passively accept the fact that some people don't pay taxes, that the multinationals don't pay taxes, or that the officials are taking money home out of corrupt practices or are incompetent or that he's receiving very bad services, uh, is it, no longer willing to accept that passively. You know, the, you have more and more uh, reaction, uh, and therefore you need to deliver these things. So trust is an absolutely critical element of uh, these, uh, and, and it's, a broader, it's a broader concept of which justice, corruption, etc., are just some of the expressions. Mr. Secretary General, thank you. Well, thank you. For the past nine years, Angel Guria has presided over the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, OECD, as its fifth Secretary General. His conversation in the World Policy Journal Winter 16 issue, Latin America on Life Support, is headlined, Free Trade, Ticket to a Bigger Party. And yes, close followers of the WPJ correctly suspect that Secretary General Guria also is the father of another winter issue contributor and past guest on this podcast, Angel Guria Quintana. Also featured in the WPJ Winter Issue, Latin America on Life Support, you'll find articles about what's changed in Cuba and what hasn't, defiance and despair in Venezuela, as well as black sites on the Internet and deadly cross-currents at the Syria-Turkey border. And listen next week when our podcast will begin to focus on the new spring issue, Black Lives Matter Everywhere, and its big question feature, Is Affirmative Action Necessary to Overcome Institutional Racism? World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, Managing Editor Yaffa Frederick, Podcast Producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern. <laughs>